Hey, this is Dag, and you're listening to Beyond Trek Podcast. Welcome to another edition of Beyond Trek Podcast. I'm your host, Big J, here along with Renzo. So we're going to have a duo review today, not only just two of us, but you'll have to catch the two separate episodes that we're reviewing. We had an overlap with Star Trek Discovery and um, first episode in a new season of Star Trek Picard. So we're pulling double duty tonight. I'm sure we'll be able to, to get through this. So let's start right in and, and dive in with, uh, let's see, this was episode 11 in season four of Discovery called Rosetta. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Let's hit that ground running. Right. So first, the name. Fascinating choice of a name. It's named after the Rosetta Stone, which was how we ended up deciphering hieroglyphics, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, and it had two other languages on it, which are notable because that's the only way that it worked. If we'd only had one, deciphering the hieroglyphics might have still been pretty rough. So it had both ancient Greek and uh, a language called Demotic, both of which we had a pretty decent understanding of. Um, what was the second one? Demotic. D-E-M-O-T-I-C. Never heard of that one. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that was the so that so the tablet itself is damaged, right? The first mm -hmm, portion right. has hieroglyphics, the middle portion has demotic, and the bottom portion has ancient Egyptian. Okay. Or sorry, ancient Greek. Um, the the Greek portion is also damaged. The hieroglyphics portion is damaged, but the demotic one is the one that's most complete. So it was pretty necessary to get all three on the same thing and to figure out that they said the same thing because we could figure out that, Oh, look, the demotic one says this. Oh, the Greek one says this. Well, shit, the third one, the, the one we can't read must say the same thing too. And right. so that was the clutch bit of deciphering it. It happened in like the uh, early 1800s. So like 1820s or so. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a very significant bit for how we decide or how we managed to decipher that language. So and it was a, a great title that they used for this because they need to find a frame of reference to even have a chance to communicate with species 10 C in the previous episode, we had uh, determined that well, the universal translator is not guaranteed to be able to work with species 10 C. They could have a completely different means of communicating. So if they don't have that frame of reference, they're they're not going to be able to do it. They're just go, uh, going to go in cold. Yeah, exactly. And that's a significant thing of any first contact, right? In Star right. Trek, they often manage to rely just on like the, the Universal Translator. But we've seen even with it, we get uh, mistakes made, right? So sure. like Porthos peeing on a plant in Enterprise Oof. caused a huge diplomatic incident. Uh, where Archer had to like dress up in a fancy costume and do a particular dance. We yeah. see the same thing happen in, in Voyager and in, you know, I would argue that the entire Dominion War is a result of a bad first contact. So, I mean. Yeah, you know, the first contact with the Dominion didn't necessarily go as smoothly as, mm -hmm. as you'd want. No, not at all. Uh, but yeah, so first contact, very important. Second contact, mm -hmm. as we learned from uh, Lower Decks, also very important, but they don't have right. that hurdle. A frame of reference and language communications generally established by that point. But, right. So that's what this episode's about. It's about getting the underpinnings of a first contact ready before you go do the first contact, uh, because it's such an important one. Mm -hmm. If you fuck up on like talking to your neighborhood 
your friendly local alien race you've never encountered before who has a dozen planets or whatever. Right. Okay. Bad first contact. Maybe we have some chilled relations for a while, but eventually we'll figure it out. Right. 10 C has 29 hours until they probably destroy earth and Navarre. So <laughs> no, no room for mistakes here. No, uh, yeah. no there isn't. Yeah. Okay. So the episode starts with Burnham doing like a log entry or whatever, uh, just talking about how far away they are from the 10 C's base the hyperfield as they presume it mm-hmm. um and we get this really cool shot showing a like a, a a bombarded rock of a planet and a couple dyson rings around the star with some additional big ass platforms around it the hell of a know, shot i want to know more about that the, mm-hmm. the dyson ring and uh, dyson technology and it's been a while since we've not only seen that but it's been a while since we had a captain's log so true why would they They've gone this long without doing it. Why all of a sudden have one? It's been so inconsistent. Sure, I miss it. But throughout the entire run of Discovery, it's like something that's been uh, kind of an afterthought with every other iteration of Star Trek having the captain's log. This is probably what the third or fourth in the entire series. So yeah, far. we definitely have not had a, a regular cadence of them, mm-hmm. which honestly doesn't bother me. It's not a it's not a huge deal because we've had lots of Star Trek episodes that don't have them all throughout the franchise. It's just not it's just not the wheelhouse that they're using for disco. So right. that's cool. I mean, every getting one every now and then is nice. We've seen a couple in this season with like Saru doing a log, or I think Tilly did a log once earlier in the season too. Uh, but yeah, they're just not a focus. So right. whatever. Uh, but yeah, so uh, Burnham's dictating the, uh, her log. Um, they she specifically wants to point out that they're going to this world because they believe it was 10 c's home world mm-hmm. uh because it's so close to the hyperfield it's got the right age and some of the readings around it were suspicious like and the dyson rings um i want to point out something that i think is very interesting here okay uh these dyson rings are smaller than a dyson sphere obviously but they're not something you're going to be making habitable they're very close to the star the point is to collect energy cool Fantastic. It's like giant solar arrays, very close to a star, collect everything you got, reuse that power. Right. That's a lot of power. Oh, and, that's uh, a lot. Yeah, it's a ton of power. It's more than hundreds or thousands of warp cores, if it, it, considering how close it was, right? So, hey, uh, Tarko wants to go jump to another universe? Use yeah. that. Yeah, if, if that's not what's controlling the DMA, Good Lord, I want to see what is, because mm-hmm. that seemed like that would be the perfect thing unless it was I don't know, shut down or something like that. I mean, even if it's non-functional, mm-hmm. that should still be something Starfleet studies while they're out here for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If, if they've got the time. Right. If they had the time. <laughs> OK, so we get this cool scene where uh, Burnham, Saru, Detmer and Culver are heading out to their shuttle uh, and uh, Deera Tall. Uh, swings by and gives a very awkward fly good to Detmer. It's not the first time somebody's told Detmer fly good. Pike said the same thing to her uh, in second season. Yeah. So cool, cool little throwback. But Adira was not there during that, so uh, they clearly didn't know that they were referencing something that had been said before, which is cool, right? Like that's yeah. it's a clear sign that uh, they're trying to like make a friend, and that becomes a relevant part of the episode later. Now, with that scene of uh, Colbert, Detmer, Saru, and uh, uh, Captain Burnham walking down the hallway, I got the right stuff 
uh, vibes from that. I, I haven't seen the whole thing, but that's anytime you have a walking on a hallway scene like that, that movie tends to come up. So beautifully shot scene. Yeah, I have no complaints about it. It looked really good. It actually reminded me of the West Wing where you have hundreds of scenes with a group of characters walking down a hallway and just talking very quickly about something. But here it was silent. It was just like this very epic, like we need to like get this done kind of montage. Yeah. I think but they yeah. did that in Armageddon too. <laughs> That's You're right. You they see. certainly did. There was that scene uh, with the, with Will Smith's pilot and the hacker guy, like just walking towards the, the alien shuttle thing. That, that was independence day. Ar- Armageddon was the coolest oh, one. Hmm. And Ben Affleck, they had to drill into that. You're right. Big ass. That's, yeah. Yeah. You are right, sir. All right. So next scene is with Tarka and Booker deciding what their plan is. Mm-hmm. And they come up with this cockamamie scheme where they're going to install a patch, a software patch uh, inside of Discovery to null out Zora's sensors on like a small section of the hull. And they're just going to like piggyback ride all the way there. It's a little scale. convoluted. <laughs> it's real convoluted, but whatever. I mean, We've seen many Olympic kind of ideas in Star Trek before where a ship just kind of like tags along. It happens to the Enterprise D. It happens to the Defiant does it at one point. So it's Mm -hmm. cool. Um, It does worry me that Booker is willing to like board Discovery, do this thing where he there's no way he could know he's not going to have to kill someone on the crew to do it. Right. He can't know that he's not going to have to do it. It's a risky move and he's willing to try it anyways. Well, yeah, I mean, they are pretty desperate at this point. And then the fact they were able to attach themselves to discovery that gave me Empire Strikes Back vibes. Yeah, actually, the Millennium Falcon on the Imperial Star Destroyer. You're right. That's a good call. (laughs) It is a lot like that. And I'm not sure I like it. it's like I said, it's a cockamamie scheme. We've seen it before, whatever. Um, cool. Yeah. It's, the, it's one of those things where we need to get the characters from here to here and we need to have a reason. All right, let's, here's the reason might not make sense, but we got to get them from point A to point B. Yeah. There was yeah. one good thing about this scene where they uh, were Tarka and book were very like honest about the fact that they don't know that they won't run into Michael during this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how Booker will respond if they run into Michael. Uh, so yeah, that's realistic is all hell. Yes, it is. Um, it also shows a little bit of softening in Booker's tone towards Tarka as a result of the, the explanations he got from last episode, all those exposition scenes, which is really good. Uh, it's realistic. Uh, it's, it's dumb, right? Like the guy is still a monster, but I get it. Yeah. (laughs) Good point. Uh, okay. So that's that scene. Uh, the next scene is the shuttle bay scene where we've got Rillick and the other, uh, diplomats and xenoanthropologists and all of them, uh, on the, uh, like, part of the like reception, I guess, almost like they, they want to talk to Burnham before she leaves, which is like a real waste of time in my book. I get it. I get that they want to be there, but it felt like a bit of a waste of time. They're complaining about wasting time while they're wasting time, complaining about wasting time. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's like this circular wormhole here that, and I, I get the, uh, the concern that some of them had, especially general, 
Uh, Ndoye. Ndoye, yeah. Yeah, I liked Ndoye. Her character is growing on me like crazy. Um, they're fleshing her out well. She is, the actress is kicking ass with yes. uh, really conveying that like frustrated, uh, almost desperation really well. Well, and especially in a situation like this where you feel like making a pit stop here to kind of go exploring, you don't have time for that. Or at least that's the the feeling is we don't have time for that. We need to go directly to 10C, which I can understand that. But like we said at the beginning of our talking about this episode, if you have no frame of reference to be able to communicate, then it, it doesn't do you dangerous. any good. It is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I definitely, I think that Burnham is making the right decision by doing this, but justifying it is hard. I've, I've got an example for you. I'm not sure how much of this was true. I just remembered it. Um, so Nixon, President Nixon goes to Australia and Nixon was always known for the, you know, the, the peace sign thing, waving him around. But I heard in Australia, apparently that's our way of giving the middle finger. Yeah. I mean, two finger thing. Definitely. Uh, and uh, JFK, Ik Ben Ein Verliner, that I am a jelly filled donut. That one has some nuance to it. That story is a little bit of nuance. <laughs> right. So almost everywhere in Germany, mm -hmm. a Berliner is a jelly filled donut or a cream filled donut. Cool, right. cool. But in Berlin, which is where he was giving the speech, a Berliner is a person from Berlin, right? Yeah. So yeah. while it played well to the crowd, it did not play well to the TV audience, right? <laughs> so, but then again, uh, he was also very clearly shown to be making an effort by even mm -hmm. doing a sentence in German to a bunch of people who were looking to him to provide like security, uh, especially right after the Berlin airlift. Yep. So yeah, it, I get it, but yeah, that's a good comparison. I like that. Um, but yeah, so we get this great scene with Ndoye expressing uh, her concern, uh, Tarina being supportive and Dr. Harai uh, make the trip count. Don't screw it up. Right. Like, and really gives him these dagger eyes of like, the fuck did you just say like <laughs> really now and the relic actress as ever i love yeah i i like that look well the guy was kind of being like i don't know how to talk to people but i'm going to try anyway um, that's yeah how i see that guy no and chila horsdal which i hope that's how i pr how you pronounce her name the actress for relic just absolutely looks like she's ready to strangle him without with just her eyes because she's a diplomat she's looking like very presidential and then just mm -hmm. this look i loved it uh cool so mm -hmm. burnham responds that why she's bringing certain members of the group she's taking saru because saru's got a ton of language experience and his sensory skills are better than your average human and they don't know if their technology would work so take what you got uh and the rest of the group is necessary, you know, so it, it makes sense. Her choice of group uh, going herself as a Xeno uh, scientist makes sense as well. Uh, Xeno anthropologist herself, it all, yep. it all makes sense. Uh, so they promise to do their best and they head out in the shuttle. Very cool. much a throwback to the original series. You got the captain, the first officer, the chief medical officer, and just, you know, whoever else. 
haven't seen that in a while. And I mean, I was worried that they were going to redshirt Detmer because of that. (laughs) Oh, Oh yeah. That's, I wasn't thinking about that, but yeah, I, I probably would have been like, and especially because, um, uh, uh, wasn't, wasn't in the episode. So whenever they're shifting that budget to who, who we need someone to get a little more screen time, but we have to have one of the other, uh, B characters gone. That's when I always get suspicious. Like, all right, someone's biting the dust in this episode, mm-hmm. but yeah, you're right. Cool. So next scene is the shuttle. Uh, which I love the new look of these shuttles, just putting that out there again, uh, goes through, lands on the planet. They lose communications. It's a bumpy trip. Uh, cool. At least the laws of physics still work. Uh, was a good line from Dr. Culber. Really thought that was a clever line. Um, that was pretty fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Star Trek is replete with beings that manage to just go, oh, you thought physics worked this way? That's cute. Let's change it up. <laughs> and we'll talk about that during our, our Picard review, I'm sure. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it was it was a cool scene. They land. Uh, they scan some ruins. I really liked how even as they're landing and descending through the atmosphere, like they're all like looking at different things and then sharing that information and their findings with each other. Right. So uh, Burnham is looking at some ruins. Saru is looking at like some, some determinations as to like the meteorite impacts, mm-hmm. all that really cool. Uh, and just to state it here, what they determined was that this was a former gas giant that had been hammered by meteorite impacts, which stripped it of its atmosphere. Yep. Uh, that That's not impossible based on our current understanding of things, but man, would it be a shit ton of asteroids hitting at, at it? Right. Even if it was a small gas giant, right? Something like, like a cold giant like Neptune or, or, or Uranus, mm-hmm. like those two are much smaller than the big guys like Jupiter or Saturn or some of the hyper giants you've seen in other solar systems, but yeah. it's not impossible. It's not impossible. Just a lot. Right. And I kind of had a hard time buying that because like you said, it's not impossible, but very highly improbable. Like, like you said, how, where would these rocks come from? How would they get bombarded that much? And I would have to imagine that it had to be pretty steady bombardment right uh you know you can't have a few every thousand or so years otherwise it's yeah the one that caught me more by surprise is so they were clearly evolved or technologically developed enough to make the dyson rings Mm -hmm. but they couldn't shoot down some rocks well it you see my point yeah now okay there's probably more to this story Right. right. Like if some alien enemy of theirs uh, created a micro wormhole and just started throwing rocks at them, that's a deadly weapon. You know, right. we've seen that in Babylon five, the Centauri bombing Narn with the mass drivers with oh, rocks. Yes. Definitely a weapon. Uh, but that's not impossible. They could they could do it that way. But right. uh, in the absence of other explanation, I remain curious to how they let that happen sure. themselves. Uh, okay, so they land, the shuttle decloaks, which is nice. I like the implementation of cloaking device throughout Starfleet here. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's where we have the interesting bits uh, that they show no life signs with their tricores, uh, even their own. So something is certainly disrupting their technology. Good thing they brought Saru. <laughs> uh, they bring out their phasers. Everybody set to stun. And... Uh, As soon as they start walking, we see this scene with Saru getting like disoriented. He sees 
uh, glimpse. He sees like a glimpse of something from the past. It looks almost like a like a giant sea snake or something with almost like wings is what it looked like to me. Kind of like yeah. writhing in pain in the sky. It was hard to see because it was just quick flashes of that. Uh, Obviously by choice, right? Like yeah. they wanted us to be left still wondering. So I'm sold. That works for me. Um, they don't tell us why he starts seeing this at this point, And we're right. left wondering. Uh, the neat thing then is after his little episode ends, uh, Culber like steadies him, like checks in on him. And they realize that they're leaning up against a very large bone, like a giant whale bone kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and then wasn't that, yeah, that was supposedly a very, very large thing. So I'm, I was trying to make some guesses here as to what kind of species 10 C is if a bone is, is that size. And I don't know, I'm, I'm not really coming up with, because I'm trying not to relate it to any species in our galaxy. Well, we don't know of any besides our own. Right, right. So 10C, they may turn out to be just large, just yeah. very big people. I mean, to be fair, right? Science fiction has long had mm-hmm. uh, species that live inside of gas giants, right? Uh, I'm down with this idea. I have n- no issues with it. Uh, their size makes sense, right? If they live in an atmosphere where there is less gravity because they're further away from the planet's core, cool. Uh, their density is going to be different. There's a lot of science involved, but it's not insurmountable. It works for me. Um, what I do think is really neat is the colors that they chose for these scenes, right? You've got this very brown, not quite red like Mars, but this brownness. And then mm-hmm. these blue puddles or not puddles. They're like blue sandy areas everywhere, uh, which do end up becoming relevant. Um but yeah, it was a really striking visual. I liked it. They're definitely putting that that wall that they use uh, for shooting these scenes to good use as a result. Yeah. Oh, that's right. They are using the wall that they uh, that first started with the Mandalorian, aren't they? Yeah, I can't remember oh, the name of it. Yeah. It's like a dream wall or something, but it's essentially a giant wraparound screen yep. uh, that they can then that they perform in front of, and then they use it to. Uh, fill in digital effects afterwards, which is sick, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like rear projection, but taken to a new level. Yep. It's like matte paintings, but Large. moving. Yeah. <laughs> right. <and big>. Moving. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So that's all cool. Uh, okay. So cutting back to Discover or technically onto Booker Ship, uh, they beam onto Discovery after prepping. There was this, I thought, pretty cute scene where they're getting onto the transporter and Booker like stoops and uh, Tarka like goes, why are you doing that? And uh, Booker clearly knows what he's fucking doing. And Tarka would have been an idiot if he just remained standing and would have been sliced in half by the transporter. Like that a lot. (laughs) Uh, It also tells us something about the Quajon ships uh, transporter safeties. Mm -hmm. It would have beamed them into something uh, that a person would not fit. I don't think that would happen with Starfleet transporters. We've never seen it happen. So you're, you're right. Yeah. And it's not often that we, and that's another very inconsistent thing. You have uh, instances where they adjust their posture or standing um, Star Trek 2009, when Spock was about to beam down to Vulcan, he crouched down 
uh, why I don't know. He was going to be beaming outside, not like he thought he was going to end up under a tree. But anyway, uh, but then later in the movie, he's sitting in that jellyfish, gets beamed to the Enterprise, and now he's standing. So I think the transporters in Star Trek operate at the technology of plot. Yeah, but it, it is an interesting little bit there that Tarka has none of those street smarts, which we expect, right. and Booker does, and is like essentially snarky, snarkily getting him to do what he's supposed to. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so they beam over to Discovery and they're in the Jeffries tubes and they uh, start traveling after a little bit more uh, banter back and forth. Okay, back to the surface on the planet. Uh, Burnham and group are like kind of starting to worry. Um, they start scanning the bones. Uh, this confirms what I was saying a few minutes ago, where the bones themselves are low density. They were very flexible, similar to cartilage. Uh, they were adapted to floating in gas layers. Again, makes perfect sense for a gas giant. Mm -hmm. Um, so good. They thought this through. They're not like heavy underwater bones, like whale bones. Uh, they More like avian bones. Probably similar, not hollow, I would think, okay. uh, because bird bones are still kind of brittle. Sure. Uh, but yeah. these would have to be somewhat flexible because pressure, as you go up and down the layers of a gas giant, the pressures get very different. Mm -hmm. So they have to be able to take different pressures, whereas a bird just has one, one atmosphere. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so they start noticing the blue dust in the wind and they notice the blue dust on the ground. And it's some complex hydrocarbon that they've never seen in the Federation database. Uh, it's very neat. It makes this whole area look like it was a mass grave, which is going to become very somber and sad once we understand why. So uh, basically uh, beam down to a graveyard. Well, it's a dead planet, right? Yeah. Everything's a graveyard at that point. Yep. Yep. That's a good point. Wouldn't they be able to scan the bones and somehow extrapolate what it would look like or, or what it is, or is there just so much no frame of reference that, that they can't do that? Hard to say, right? Like, right. It, so remember with the Voth and Voyager, how they did that whole, like, okay, now show me what they'd look like after 60 million years of evolution. And it suddenly looked a lot like the fucking Voth. Yes. Right. But we know how life on earth generally evolves. But what mm -hmm. we don't know is where the Voth were and what other pressures would have led to their evolution working in a certain way. So it's kind of an unbelievable scene that it would work at all and that it was close to accurate. But yeah. Sarfleet's technology seems to be able to generally reconstruct what something looks like from remains. Yeah. Maybe by the 31st century, they're, they're better at it. They just can't do it without any frame of reference. And that's what this would be. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, it's generally like a cool scene where they start putting together some parts. They start looking around and they notice that there's one building uh, in the distance that is in much better shape. It was reinforced. So they start traveling towards that reinforced building, thinking that it might be, you know, a government building or something more important than all the rest. It's got to be important to be that reinforced. Yep. All right. So back to discovery and we've got Rillick talking to Dr. Harai. He's playing like a crossword, a 3d crossword puzzle, which is really cool. Yeah. And he's trying to think of a word for an act, which a person is bound to complete. Uh, Rillick first goes, 
oh, a mission. Uh, but that's not right because it needs to be 10 letters and that's not 10 letters. Mm-hmm. And uh, Harai is kind of like dismissive of like, no, 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 I can figure this out myself. Like it's clear that he didn't really welcome the input, but yeah, uh, they have a cool little back and forth where Rillick admonishes him for uh, being too negative and how it affected yeah. Ndoye and uh, you could be a bit more supportive makes sense he could he's he kind of reminds me of you you probably know this i'm sure you've seen this in the it profession there are a lot of us that are just we're in our office or encapsulated surrounded by all the uh, monitors and old computers and dust and cables and everything and not really interactive with people uh you know certainly come across my fair share that they're very introverted to me. This guy seems very introverted. Like he actually spends most of his time to himself in a lab. Doesn't really interact a whole lot. So he can't read the room really can't read the room. Uh, like it's not a good one for him. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not. And I'm glad in the 31st century that we still have crossword puzzles. Well, uh, it was just, it was recommended to him by Kovic, which I think is an interesting point. Kovic recommended to him and it's an ancient earth puzzle, right? <laughs> yeah. Which I think leads to me having a theory now that Kovic is an Elorian because he seems to know a lot about old stuff. Like he knew about, hmm. uh, what was the show? The one from last episode, the four hour. Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island. He knew about Gilligan's Island and he knows about ancient crosswords. It's kind of interesting. I think he might be really, really fucking old. Yeah. <laughs> He looks it. Yeah. I mean, Cronenberg is a great actor, so he definitely has this real stoicness to it. Uh, but yeah, it was cool. Um, but yeah, so Harai uh, like agrees that he's going to do better. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And then as she's like about to leave, she's like, oh, let me spin around the keyboard, types in obligation and like just storms off. Right. Like. Rillick is smart. Rillick knows words. Rillick would be great at Wordle. Uh, I have no (laughs) doubts of that. What the Uh, hell is this Wordle thing? I I keep seeing people posting stuff on Facebook, whatever. What the hell? We don't have the time. (laughs) (laughs) This will take forever, man. All right. Uh, But yeah, just think of it. It's just a a new word game, basically. I'll research it on the uh, uh, offline. Yeah. 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 (laughs) All right. And then so back to the Jeffries tube, uh, Booker overhears a conversation between Tarina and Ndoye where Ndoye expresses some of her concerns. Makes sense. Uh, And here's where Booker gets this bright idea that he's going to somehow enlist Ndoye's help in their plot. Uh, And here is where they decide to like split up. Uh, Booker is going to go try and talk to Ndoye or trick, trick Ndoye into going someplace so they can talk. And, uh, uh, Tark is going to go to patch the ship and do their actual mission. Well, it's a good idea because it was pointed out that Endoye agreed with the type of uh, uh, vote with them. It's true. Right. Voted with them. So they might as well try to get a hold of the possibly only ally they would have present on that ship. Well, right. And Endoye would be the only one. It is a, still a huge risk, though. Yep. Uh, I'm not sure that it's a good idea. But it is a big risk. Well, I mean, at this point, there's not a lot. An idea is an idea, whether it's good or bad, still an idea. That, that's kind of at the point where they're at right now. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with you there. It's certainly better than doing nothing. Yes. 
Uh, but yeah, so they split up generally a bad idea to split up a team on like a small party on something like this, but it's only they can do this because they just don't have the time. They'll get caught by Zora eventually, even right. if they've got little sensor evading patches or bracelets or whatever the hell they used. Right. Uh, Better to catch one than both of them walking around at the same time together. Mm hmm. Okay, back to the surface. Saru is still having a bit of a panic attack. He's clutching his phaser, like seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, Culber, uh, Culber and Burnham remark that his fear responses should be gone after the Laharai, but his levels are dangerously elevated for like a stress hormones. Okay, so Culber goes over and tries to like stabilize him. And uh, while they're talking, Culber has the same fear event happen, mm -hmm. right? He sees some of these visions. He freaks out. Uh, definitely similar to them. And at that point, um, they start talking about how their suits should filter out any external element, right? Nothing should be getting through to them. Uh, to try and like comfort them. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it doesn't look good for our heroes here. If two of them are having crazy psychic events, it almost seems like um, back to the ship. Yeah. Booker and Tarka uh, out of the Jeffries tube uh, below engineering. Tarka goes, the uh, text three life signs. So he's going to create a diversion um, to get himself in engineering. Booker sends like a message under Tarina's name to Endoye and uh goes to meet up with Ndo like Ndoye as part of his plan mm -hmm. uh tarka remarks at this point right before they split up as i mentioned before that uh they don't have a lot of time so be convincing and uh this could give us away if she doesn't agree to help us so and then they're screwed at that yeah. point that's the risky thing right like if yeah. they've got this plan and it seems to be going well finish your patching then maybe try for the bonus objective but Sure. Yeah. Don't do the side quest first. <laughs> get, I can't say I follow that rule, but <laughs> yeah, we're right. I know exactly what you're talking about. They're hard to, uh, hard to avoid. Mm -hmm. So they go back, going back to the shit or going back to the planet. Rather, uh, Detmer, uh, is noting that there's no cultural artifacts, no technology in the room. Uh, she and Burnham decide that uh, uh, Saru should not be escorted back to the shuttle. Keep it here. Let's give it a little bit more time. Let's try and see what we can figure out. And then Burnham randomly, without having touched Saru or Culver, starts having the same sort of like issues. Mm -hmm. uh, all their fear responses are now elevated. They're all having the same kind of issue, um, except for Detmer, which is interesting. So Burnham starts scanning. There's no psionic energies, no infrasound. Uh, Saru confirms that there's no magnetic or electrical things. Culber says that their suits can definitely filter any sort of like chemical reactions that are going on. And so, they all have the same settings. Yeah, they all are they, at the highest difficult or the highest protection settings. Yeah. And so and, and Detmer confirmed that like, no, my settings are the default like everyone else. Mm -hmm. so they take five minutes is what burnham says like don't panic let's take five minutes let's see if we can figure this out here's a problem let's try and figure it out mm -hmm. uh so and if they can't they'll go back to the shuttle and detmer will carry on without them um okay seems reasonable solid yeah. plan yeah i mean take a few minutes before you before you you abandon abandon the mission right uh cool back on the ship uh Tarka is outside of engineering. Uh, 
we see a cool scene with Reno ordering Ractagino, hot as hell, no nutmeg. Uh, I love Jet, uh, Reno. I really do. Mm-hmm. I want to see her in more episodes. But now I finally know why they've been in so few this season. It's because the actress, Tignataro, uh, has taken COVID extremely seriously. Yeah, Much respect that. for that. Mm-hmm. So uh, she had requested to be in as little as used as possible. Uh, but as far as we know, she did not request to get killed off because if they kill Jet Reno, we riot. So, uh, oh, yeah. And that's a shame. And I, I get the whole taking COVID very seriously. But, you know, then, then we, we didn't get much of a character that I think is one of the fan favorites. I, I know we always like seeing her around, but, you know. I mean, some things are more important what, than the show, right? It is what it is. Yeah. This is definitely one of those things that's just more important than the show staying safe during a global pandemic that happens once in a lifetime, mm-hmm. you know, fuck it. All right. We'll see less of Reno for the season. Um, I really like her, but cool. It's a, it's a cool scene that builds up her bona fides as the chief engineer, yes. right? She's not necessarily involved in every troubleshooting scene, but she is definitely the one that makes sure stuff keeps working. It's not Sam. It's, it's her. Yeah. I'm down. So what starts to happen uh, that gets their attention is uh, Linus shows up and reports that there are hot bananas, steamed bananas coming out of the replicators, which is very clearly a lower decks reference. Ooh, steamed bananas. You remember in the first episode, right when they're welcoming Tendi, like they're fixing a replicator and like uh, Boimler is catching steaming hot bananas flying out of it and burning mm-hmm. himself while doing it. Yeah. Love the fact that they did a lower decks reference. Big fan. I will never go around a warm or steamed banana again, because I had one very bad experience with it. Let me tell you this story. So was at a, a previous employer of mine a couple times a year, we would have this, like this big sales blitz. There was a lot of like fanfare, some different events, uh, different contests each morning, thing like that, things like that. So one of them was we had to, some of us got called up and the contest was, I think it was, um, who could, who could eat a banana through a, uh, pantyhose on, on the head. I don't know where this, who had this idea. So put on pantyhose, right? And uh, of course you can't, it, it's hard to eat something through that. Right. Naturally. So they came up with the idea of bananas and then the thought was, okay, well to get the bananas to where you could like, you know, push it through to, to be able to eat had to be warmed up. Not sure how they warmed it up. Uh, so anyway, right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's so be real. Took, took this banana and just shoved it right in. And oh my God, it, and everyone up there, because nobody knew what was going to happen doing that. And it that, made a mess. It, it was just, it took everything I could not for that stuff to just come back out the other way with a pair of freaking stockings covering me up. It could have been a disaster. What a Ooh. gross idea. Whoever oh. thought that up was definitely not good. No, no, that was yeah, that was terrible. All right. So the other thing that happens in this scene is pretty cool. Adira uh, shows up and expresses to Reno that they want to be better friends with Detmer. Mm-hmm. And so with 
Reno jokes that it's like a one graze away Adira will play kind of thing. And Adira's very like immediate response was no, 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 not like that. I just want a friend. And that's cool. Um, it, it's more of Adira being kind of socially awkward. Uh, they're definitely coded as neurodivergent. Cool. Uh, it was a, it was a good scene to show how they react to a social situation that they are not comfortable with, yeah. but otherwise, whatever. Cool. Uh, did you have anything else about this scene? Uh, you know what I kind of thought was funny. I rewound a little, little bit was when, uh, Reno flicked her right in the side of the head. Uh, uh, Adira. I don't know. I just, I, I like stick and that was then, then yeah. Uh, the side of the head. So, um, juvenile humor. I thought it was funny. Yeah, no, I'm down for slapstick. Star Trek has had it forever. Uh, mm-hmm. so it, it works for me. Uh, okay. Yeah. Next scene, uh, is back on the planet. They're still figuring out the hallucinations. Uh, they start talking about when it all started. Culber's began when he touched Saru's arm. Uh, Burnham then makes the connection of like, what if it's the blue dust that I'm standing in right now? Mm-hmm. Oh, Culber kneeled in it. Oh, wait, when we were back out there is when Saru stepped in it. Okay, so what is it about the blue dust, right? Right, yeah. And so they were able to reprogram the, uh, I'm sorry, the programmable matter in the filtering system so that they could keep that out. So whatever this crazy blue dust was, was what was causing causing that reaction, the the fear reaction. Yeah, which, you know, I mean, it's weird that these hydrocarbon molecules would get through the filter even like anyways, yeah. but I can I can swallow it. That's not that big a deal. Right. Unlike your banana. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's fine. The other cool bit that happens here is Saru is still calming down. It's taking him longer than the rest of them to relax a bit. And uh, Detmer uh is trying to like talk to him he compliments detmer's coolness and detmer chalks it up to the ptsd therapy and uh after her first trauma from like with the shenzo or shenzo uh then her other trauma after the crash landing so she's been through a bit oh yeah right right she's she's been through some shit so yeah and then she talks about her childhood of being the queen of putting things into boxes which is a normal part of coping for many people. Um, mm-hmm. but you should still every now and then make sure that you let things out so that they can, the stress on them can be relieved. You don't have to keep everything boxes forever. Uh, definitely. If you guys disagree with me on this one, let me know in the comments, but even things that like, I still am ashamed about or like pissed about mm-hmm. every so often I let it out talk about it, make sure that I still understand it, still care. And if right. I still care back into the box, it goes, if I no longer give a shit, it can go, go away. Yeah. Oh, that, that's a good way to handle it. Because if you don't take it out of the box, it just, it gets worse. It really does. You like to think that it doesn't, but something keeps kind of gnawing at you, aggravating you. And before you know it, you're in a bad mood around everyone, little snappy, <clears throat> you know, kicking your cat getting hangry all the time things like that 
Cool. So back to discovery in engineering again. Here's where uh, the the actual scene where Linus shows up, reports the replicators are uh, malfunctioning, steamed bananas, etc. We just talked about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Reno dispatches engineers from main engineering to go do this thing because there's no need to have people in main engineering when the ship's not moving. We're just sitting here, and if it's needed, we can beam back. Right. Yeah. Cool. All makes sense. Um, Tarka then seizes this opportunity with everybody gone and Reno left with Linus to like sneak out and start messing with a panel. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other side of the ship, Booker is meeting with Ndoye, even though Ndoye thought it was Tarina. Uh, she grabs him as soon as she realizes who it is and has a knife up against his throat. Yeah. Love that. Immediate reaction is the right thing to do. Uh, badass reaction. Yeah, yeah, it was. With programmable yeah. matter, you don't know what someone's going to come up with. You should yeah. be picking up on people. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I think would be a really cool thing to have with programmable matter would be like, you've got a bracelet, you've got yeah. a ring or something, and it is just enough matter to turn into like a short little dagger, like what Ndoye was using yeah. at a moment's notice, right? It reacts to your yeah. emotions. You feel threatened. It manifests as like a, a quick little weapon in the event of something like that. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. The, the programmable matter is like the coolest new technology that they have in this 31st century and they use it for everything. So yeah. Cool. Uh, and demands for one good reason why not to call security and Booker replies with this whole, you needed our help. You need our help to save your world. Don't you want to save your world kind of thing? And just ask for like two minutes. Mm-hmm. Ndoye should have reported on security, but Ndoye is panicked as a result of the, the threat to Earth. So off it goes. Uh, so Ndoye vents at Booker about like, this is your fault, kid. Like, this is your fault for making the DMA more powerful. You and Tarka uh, it's, it are the real problem here, too. Uh, Booker reminds her that like we were trying to save Earth. Uh, if our plan had worked, if you guys had backed it, maybe it would have. Not likely, uh, but tries to get out of it with that reminds. Uh, he also says the whole like Booker or Booker says the whole like I lost my whole world. I just want you to not lose yours. Fair argument, but like intentions don't matter when the results are this bad. Right. What's the, right. the saying? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yes. So. Well, yeah. and here's the other thing is I thought in through Booker, a lot of shade for someone that basically supported the way that he wanted to take care of the situation. I, it, it just, it seemed like, Hey, wait a minute. He's doing what you wanted to do. Now he's trying to get your help and you've got a problem with it. That's I appreciate that- though, that Indoye uh, is not just willing to sign up with his shit because mm-hmm. she's still here on discovery. She may have voted against it, but she believes that first contact can work. That's why she's there. So, right. It, it, I don't know. She's, she was big enough to make sure that she went on this mission to try and help however she could, yeah. even though she didn't think that it was the best plan. And now that she's here, she's going to work to try and make it succeed. Yeah. Except for, you know, the whole, protecting a known criminal who is responsible for some of these problems. It happens. Does it though? (laughs) All right. So they go through this back and forth and they, they come to an agreement. Ndoye ensures that 
the first contact is the primary plan. Yours can be the backup. Like that's, that's the bright line that she defines. Booker's okay with it. Booker agrees. I don't think Tark is going to agree. Uh, no, he's not. You know, so this is just going to fall apart just like the last time that Booker and Tarka agreed to like wait. Tark is just going to fucking do it again. Indoye yeah. is being naive by thinking that this is something that's going to work. Unless she puts a knife up to Tarka, I don't think that it's going to matter that Booker agreed to this deal for a second. No, and I, I well, but how much of what Tarka has done is enjoy privy to i don't think it's much because a lot of the stuff that they did she was not around for but anyway but she is one of the high-ranking members on this committee i expect that she would have been briefed on how exactly it went down on uh booker's ship remember booker calls him and goes tarka just did the thing it's gonna go off get out of here michael or whatever so they should understand that Tarka is the one that did this. In fact, there was a conversation between Burnham and Relic about this too, right? right so yes. they should have at least a general idea that it's not Booker and Tarka that broke the last treaty. It's Tarka. Yes. So yeah, difficult times. And now we're back on the planet again. There's uh, a lot of jumping around. Yeah, no, this 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 episode has definitely a very clear A plot and a B plot Mm -hmm. works for me. No complaints on, you know, that as an idea. I like that generally. Uh, So it's interesting that they chose to do it this way. Uh, It works for the episode for sure. Yes. Yeah, it did. Okay. Uh, on this on this planet scene, uh, they start to figure out what this room is. They start theorizing that maybe it was a a a uh, no, 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 no. They don't come to the nursery oh, first. They right. come, they go through like a list of things that it, that it looks like it could have been an auditorium. Mm-hmm. could have been a theater. could have been like a Coliseum and they're all like, Nope. Then they finally found another set of bones and Culber's like, this one was an infant. And then Burnham puts two and two and two together. And it's, it's a nursery. That's why they reinforced it. They value their young. They try to protect their young. All of the older ones that were dead outside came here to try and make sure that the trying to think that maybe they could protect the nursery or maybe the nursery was the safest place and they all still died. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what they came to the conclusion of is that they had the inf- infants, it was nursery and that uh, with the structure. So reinforced that they actually did value life to a pretty high degree, uh, especially with, with their young which is progress, right? Yeah. Like that shows you that you can bridge you it with some emotions that are common, right? Mm-hmm. So they find another sample of the blue dust. This one has a slightly different hydrocarbon signature to it. And uh, they disable their filters and feel it. And this one is love, just true love. And they all have this cool scene about how like it's, it's an easy breath for, for Saru, it reminds them all of their families. It's a cool thing. Uh, and here's where they come up with this theory that uh, maybe these hydrocarbons are communications markers that mm-hmm. convey an emotion or a feeling. And so they reset their EV filters and uh, we cut again back to the ship. So Tarka here finishes installing his, his patch. Reno shows up, he hides under a desk. Reno walks up to him, finds him anyways, and goes, oh, I spoiled a surprise party. 
Uh, <laughs> it was a cool scene. It was good. It, it was. I, I play that game with the kids. They're hiding. You just walk up. And, oh, there you are. And she thought that somebody was pulling a prank, some kind of thing. And she came back a lot sooner, I, I believe, than Tarka had hoped. But she caught on pretty quickly that somebody was uh, screwing around. And she uh, voiced her displeasure at someone doing that in the situation. I just want to know what happened after this scene. Yes. Yeah, because and well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. You're right. But yeah. Yeah. All right. So we go back to the hydrocarbons investigation. Uh, They determine, they confirm their findings that they each convey different emotions. some species, and they mentioned the plim of ASP, ASP 27 that communicate yep. only via chemicals. Uh, so yeah, this, this all tracks. There are plenty of pheromones that are used in the animal kingdoms here on earth where they primarily communicate that way. Bees, for example. Yes. So all this works. Uh, it also makes sense that, you know, the hydrocarbons that were pr- primarily found outside, just as everything was dying, are those of fear and terror, whereas the ones inside and protected, even though they died anyways, were those of more maternal love or protection. So cool. Here's where we get the name of the episode dropped. Rosetta Stone comes up. Yeah. Cool details there. Um this essentially concludes their investigation. They feel like they've got everything they need to start they're connecting with 10 C whenever they encounter them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good scene. They start to collect some samples uh, and then they head back to the shuttle to go back to discovery. It's a good science scene. That's what I do I have like. a concern though. Sure. Yeah. What's that? So depending on how they collect samples, they might be grave robbing, right? Like Ooh. they are taking things from bodies or produced by dead infants on their home world. Jesus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So unless some implications un- here, there are definitely some concerns. <laughs> now there's a way around it. Now okay. let's say instead of taking a sample means taking what's there. No, instead taking a sample works by replicating a copy of whatever you're scanning. That works for me. That's yeah. well within Star Trek's technology, right? Like it just makes a perfect one-to-one sample of whatever you were just selecting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they, they do that anymore where they have to literally scoop some of whatever into a, I would hope not. Jar. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you're right. That could be, they could figure out how to communicate with, with 10 C and say, well, it was by means of getting some of these blue hydrocarbons on your planet. Oh, so you robbed a grave with our young ones and that sacrilege. Now you die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Definitely a concern there. Uh, but I'm with you. Definitely the whole concept of these hydrocarbon chains being the key to communication. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've seen that before and I like it. It's good. I like novel. Yep. Okay. So the shuttle lifts off. They go back to discovery. They start talking a little bit while on the flight back up and Detmer apologizes for their emotional issues, compromising the mission. Burnham cuts her off mid word and goes, if you finish that sentence, I'm going to demote you, uh, which is the perfect response to somebody apologizing for nothing. And uh, yeah, it definitely shows that Burnham cares about her crew. Detmer gets why she's saying that it's a good little feel good scene. It was good. 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. And I like how Burnham handles the crew and their officers. She makes them actually feel like they're cared about and not just, not just a number. Um, and really I'm, I'm trying to think what, what other, what other captain in star Trek really gave you that feeling? I, I think Janeway. Sure. Cisco uh, did it with, with yeah. Dax for sure. Well, one person. Yeah, definitely with, with Max. Picard was pretty distant. Picard. Yeah. Picard was real distant. Um, Kirk did it sometimes to like Yeoman Rand or other characters, but yeah, yeah, it was, I I really like Burnham's captaining style on this. Archer, you just don't know. I, you know, I couldn't get a beat on him. Archer definitely cared about Hoshi, right? Like remember in the early seasons when Hoshi was still getting her space legs and was like all freaky out about everything. God, Hoshi got on my damn nerves. I loved Hoshi, but what? yeah, okay. yeah, she was great. But in those first few first few episodes when she was still like freaking out about everything, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, it was it was cool. But yeah, so I like Burnham's captaining style. It makes sense, especially when they have gone through so much together. Uh, but we come to this one last discussion then about how uh, if 10C lost so much because of an, a bunch of asteroid impacts against their planet, where so many died because it's impossible to evacuate a whole population, why would they allow the DMA to do the same thing? Because it's essentially going to destroy planets in basically the same way. Remember what happened to Quajon? It broke apart the moon and chunks of the moon fell onto the planet and destroyed the planet. Yeah. They're basically perpetuating a cycle. Uh, so how can they let that happen? Um, Culber, the, ever the optimist, presents the notion that if they can convince 10C that the harm that they're doing is affecting real lives and real people, they will stop. Saru, ever the pessimist, goes, they probably already know and they just don't care. So we're going to see which one is right next episode because it's called Species 10C. So I expect we'll finally get to know them. I hope so. I, I mean, okay, I. I love everything up to this point, the mystery, the science behind it, et cetera, et cetera. But we brought this up uh, maybe a week or two ago when we were talking about the third season where they wait until the last episode to come to the the conclusion of what the the whole mystery was with the burn. And what we were hoping for this season is give us 10 C an episode before the last one. Don't let's, have some more which is what we're getting right which is which is great and you you raise a good point was that it seems like they obviously to me they know what they're doing i really think that they know it's costing lives but it it has to be something that is we're we're not something we're not getting or not catching there there has to be some grand more grand scheme or uh, i mean not scheme but it just seems like to me we're just missing information what, whatever is going on why they're doing it is above just basic mining i mean they're they're not out there sifting through sand to find gold it what they're doing could be very very important there could be something that of course they don't they don't know about uh that everyone else doesn't know about they could be building up something to stop a higher 
power technology or people. We talked or, about this last episode, remember? Yeah. Like maybe they're the ones putting up the galactic barrier. Maybe they are the ones that keep it there. Maybe there's something worse outside mm-hmm. of the galaxy and they're protecting us. Right. We don't know. Right. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm hoping that we get a good explanation next episode, something a bit more satisfying than like uh, he connected to a Dilithium planet. And as a result, he screamed because of emotional trauma and that made Dilithium everywhere in the galaxy go. Bleh. Yeah, that was a very unsatisfying <laughs> one for me. Yeah, I hope it, it don't make it that. Yeah, please don't <laughs> right. make it something like that. So the next scene I thought was really cool mm-hmm. um, in Burnham's ready room. Stamets is reporting that they'd sent down the dot 23s and they had collected, I want to say 16 different unique compounds. 16. Uh, yeah. Now they're going to have to do some studies on that and some testing on it, which makes sense, right? Because you can't scan a hydrocarbon and know what the emotion is. Someone's going to need to be exposed to it. And that Ooh. means an uncomfortable bit of exposure probably for some of them. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Harai is again on the scene and he's like, well, this is good start, but the Rosetta Stone required two languages to understand the third, right? So this is a starting place. Uh, Rillick gives him another glance and he goes, but, but good job, but good job guys. Right. Like he, he, he did well, uh, in getting her message there. Um, they start they make a they they set a course for the hyperfield and they go to warp uh, immediately uh tarina sticks around and offers to take a stroll with saru on the holodeck uh and that's cute it seems that their relationship is developing a little bit no longer do we have saru like awkwardly being like oh i i couldn't possibly that would that would be so unchaste of us to be doing uh, something know, together how that. awful right but so still make your move dude right we clearly she wants episodes it. left in this yeah. yeah i know right anyways so at this point the uh whole episode is taking about four hours of time it was 29 hours when they started and this scene is mm-hmm. 25 hours so they need to start testing uh stamets is very positive on this i think that this data has changed everything he feels hope for the first time Mm -hmm. stamets being usually a debbie downer for these things being optimistic it's a good sign um yeah i wonder how the testing is going to go touch this one okay what are you feeling fear all right that's the fear one touch this one what do you feel love okay we'll label that one so yeah who's the guy that gets to touch these and then Say, say how they Who feel knows? there's 16 knows? of these things and i'm sure several of them probably are not good well here's the other one right like mm-hmm. are different species going to have different reactions to some of them so kelpians and humans reacted the same to it they've got a vulcan on the ship have the vulcan see if they react to these emotions or have a vulcan do all the testing because they can suppress the emotions right oh, like it may be yes. easier for them to just be like this is this this is hate but mm-hmm. hate in the sense of like i didn't like that food it's not just hate hate okay <laughs> what's the next one uh it's a it's a love emotion but it's not love towards a parent it's like romantic love okay cool cool and they can just go oh, detailing it they just happen to have a vulcan on the ship could be cool could be cool <laughs> uh but yeah so at this point booker we go back to booker beaming back or sorry talking to Andoye. uh at this point, they're still hiding behind the wall or sorry, uh, Booker's hiding behind the wall, watching this little conference go on. Mm-hmm. And he thanks and for telling him that Burnham had returned. So before he leaves the ship, he just wanted to see uh, Burnham one last time. Clearly, he still loves her. I don't think that that's a good enough reason for Booker to get away with this. Uh, Burnham should not just forgive him. No, and I don't I- think she's going to. 
No, not not with well, but in she gave in the his, whole you cross the line thing, remember? True, true, but in his defense, because of Tarka, the situation like just kind of went off the rails. Sure. And he he actually it felt like to me he was trying to pull back on Tarka was going pretty hard in the paint and Booker's trying to reel him back in. So yeah, he's he started the mess and then got out of his control. And yep. But I don't I don't see I don't see Michael necessarily taking him back. That's tough. That's tough. You know, you, I hope she doesn't. There's some uh, some trust there that's been lost in a lot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So next. Uh, so one thing I wanted to point out, though, uh, about this whole discussion is if the species tendency primarily communicates through emotional pheromones or emotional carbon hydrocarbon complex chains. Right. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what this ship really could have used? A betazoid. Oh, right. Oh, that would have been so nice. Betazoids have trouble with weird ass brains. That's why they can't read the Ferengi, the Doctarians, or whatever. Four limb right. brains they can't do. Um, and but half Betazoids sometimes get a glimpse on those things. Remember how Deanna would sometimes get a glimpse even when her mother couldn't. Right. So yeah. they should have brought some. Bring a bring a Betazoid. Bring a half Betazoid. Bring some other like psionic races. Maybe that would have worked. Uh, well, but, but did they know that when they were departing? No, not at all. But they didn't know what they were going to meet, so it might have made sense to bring one, anyways. Bring one of everything. Yeah, we yeah we want to bring a Bajoran, a Vulcan. What what else? Is bring on our as diverse list? a group get as a, you can, so you get as yeah. most opinions on something as you can. Oh, uh, good idea. Yeah, we don't know if there are any Bazoids on the ship. I doubt it. The twenty second century. I don't. I think was before they joined the Federation. So. They would not have been in the original discovery crew, but we don't know. Oh, well, no, but I mean, they would have been on the base or in Starfleet. It's not necessarily assuming they're not extinct. Oh, shit. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. But having some some species that's pretty telepathic would probably have been a good idea. Uh, But yeah, maybe they can read the minds. Maybe they can't, but at least you should have brought one just to find out. Yeah, yeah. Good point. (laughs) Yeah, so next scene is in the lounge, and we've got Detmer and Adira meeting up, and it is a kind of fun scene, a little awkward. Um, Adira starts by congratulating uh, Detmer on their work and that the finding is a game changer. Uh, it, it's kind of like a silted discussion. like It's very clear that uh, Adira is having trouble opening up. Mm-hmm. And Detmer picks up on it and starts to encourage them, but it's still a really it's a little awkward of a scene. What can I say? Yeah, a they do bit. they do lampshade it pretty well because at the end of the scene, uh, Adira asks that uh, Detmer specifically forget that I ever told you fly good. And uh, yeah, Detmer just goes, no, I'm going to remind you of that every day of your life. Right. That's what friends do. Oh, no, that's what friends do. It's a good starting point for a good friendship. I liked it. Yeah. Having blackmail on someone. (laughs) I wouldn't call it blackmail. It's just something to tease somebody about. Yeah. I I get it. Yeah, I totally get it. That's why I could never run for president. Yeah. Too too much shit out there. I mean, I'm not even going to do it. All right. So then our next scene is. Uh, Burnham and Culber having like a cup of Mavi, uh, just to like talk mm-hmm. and like just catch up with a bit. And it's a cool scene. I've had Mavi, I'm not the biggest fan, it tastes like root 
beer that's gone flat with like a bit of spice to it. What is it's it? It's weird. It's like it's so it's like a soda or a tea, depending on how you how the how it's prepared. Uh-huh. Uh, that's really common in Puerto Rico. I'm not Puerto Rican, but I'm from Miami, so right. I have plenty of Puerto Ricans around me, and I've definitely had a couple different versions of Mavi. Um, it's okay. It's not bad. It's a cool thing to bring up for a character whose actor is Puerto Rican. And we presume that the character is familiar with it too. So it's a, it's a good cultural touchstone, which is exactly what this whole episode is about finding cultural touchstones. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just a cool bit. Okay. And they also touch a little bit about how they were both worried about finding it a, a ground to communicate what if Saru is right? What if they know, but don't care? Uh, how do you connect to people who don't care like this? Uh, That's Burnham, going to put a damper on, yeah. on everything, the whole plan. Burnham remains confident. Burnham is positive on it. They can find a way. I think that this whole like approach of the children, think of the children might really work. Yeah. Uh, so, and I don't think that's going to surprise anybody if that's what they approach it as. I can, I think I can almost guarantee you, yes, it's going to be the think of the children kind of thing. Well, but they, they would know that of course the damage they're causing on these planets that there would be children. How, how do, how do they, I don't know, how would they be completely ob- uh, oblivious to what they're doing? That's the thing that I just, I, I here's can't. the how, if you want mm-hmm. a crazy little explanation. Yep. So they're outside of the galaxy. So they are, hundreds of thousands of light years away, right? Mm -hmm. We know that the galactic barrier interferes with subspace and with the spore drive. Maybe they can't use subspace scanners to see inside of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. And so they can only rely on light speed observations of things. And as a result, they're seeing images from literally millions of years ago or hundreds of thousands of years ago before there was life or developed life on these planets. Well, but if they're, they're able, they have the technology to be able to scan and see this very hard to find, almost infinitesimal uh, material or product. Do they? Do they? This, the, the, the DMA seems to jump around randomly, blows up everything and collects only the Boronite and then leaves again. Well, it's, it's jumping to where it finds Boronite. No, it's going anywhere because Boronite is evenly distributed across the galaxy. They said, right. It's incredibly small percentages, but it's, it's everywhere. It's just incredibly mm. small amounts of it. So it just goes everywhere. Uh, right. Yeah. Because if it's, if this is, you know, the, the galaxy and it's pretty much spread throughout. Yeah. You could just kind of randomly <clears throat> go around and you'll get roughly the same amount everywhere you go. Yeah. That's a good theory is that they, they, they know what they're looking for there, but because of the barrier, if it was something they created that they. Yeah. They this conflicts, right. If they it created does. the barrier, then yeah. they should know that there's life and things there. If they didn't create the barrier and it's something else that's there, then maybe they can't see through it properly. Who knows? It, to me, the, the thing is kind of like, it's almost like a fishing pole. The, the water is your galactic barrier. And you, you know, you can't see it, but you know that there's some indicator on your fishing line that you got something that's to me, that's kind of like what the, what the DMA is, is that the person controlling it is, is the fisherman cast their, their thing out to try to catch something. The, you can't see in the water, which is a great barrier, but 
you know when you've caught something and once you start not catching anything you go around to a different part of the lake so to me that's that's kind of the way the way i look at it is that they know what they're looking for they know how to find it they know they might have to move around to get it but they can't see through the barrier think of it this way here's the analogy i would use right Mm -hmm. you know what a metal detector is yep Imagine looking on the beach in the middle of the night without a flashlight, but with a metal detector. You can't see it. You're scanning. You find the beeps and you've got your shovel. You can yes. dig, but you can't see when until you find it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Good point. So, yeah, it, I think that that works pretty well. Okay. And so we come to our very last scene with Booker's ship attached and cloaked atta- uh, like alongside Discovery or like attached to Discovery quite literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Booker returns. Uh and then he looks around the corner and Jet Reno is like inside of his ship as an unexpected hostage. And Booker <laughs> looks both surprised and kind of pissed. Yeah. <laughs> and you brought this up earlier. How how did she go from getting the drop on Tarka, who's hiding under a table, and now she's a hostage? What the hell? I have no there? idea. The only thing I can think of is presumably Tarka and Booker be- beamed over armed. Okay. Sure. And yet Reno was not armed. That's about the only thing I got. Well, but everyone seems to be able to come up with uh, weapons and stuff pretty quickly. How did she not like get out of like a calm or something, right? Like that just say something and you'll have a team of security there immediately. They'll just beam over. I don't know. Yeah. She had enough time for a, you know, a, a witty, witty quip. Mark. Yeah. She didn't have enough time to yell help or yeah. ah, <laughs> something. And you know what my first thought was when uh, it, it obviously placed her in a position where she'd be in the next episode was, wow, that's real ballsy because as unoften that uh that tignataro is in discovery episodes you're you're pulling off something there when you make your again your if they kill reno we of, riot oh yeah yeah they kill reno we're we're done it's gonna be a riot in the streets yep uh, all right so that's yeah. basically the end of the episode um what we don't see is booker's explanation to tarka of his deal with ndoye uh, which I suspect will be how the episode starts uh, mm-hmm. this this coming week. Um, it's probably going to be a whole like, how could you agree to that kind of thing? We need to get the power core. Uh, that was a stupid yeah. deal. We can't fault that that kind of thing from Tarka, which fits. Yeah, yeah, it does. All right. So next week, this stuff's getting good. Yeah, no, I think episodes. that. I think that we've got a good baseline for what to expect. I just hope that whatever they decide to do uh, with this is interesting. Uh, but yeah, it was a good episode overall. I really liked the science to it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the science was great. So we've got two more episodes in this season of discovery alongside with the first few episodes of Picard. It's a little bit of overlap here. And next episode of discovery is named 10 C and uh, apparently we're supposed to, I guess, make that contact. I, I think that's, I'm sorry, a species tendency will be the name of the next episode. They need to just go ahead and do it. We need to see them and start working on whatever it is going here. So, yeah, great episode, in my opinion. Yeah, I was a big fan. I thought that they did a really good job presenting this as like a, a real mystery 
which, mm-hmm. you know, trying to understand how to communicate is always a mystery. This goes back to the conversation from the previous episode with Harai and Kovic about like uh, confirmation bias. Yeah. Because if everybody were. T- if everyone is inside of our galaxy descended of the precursors or the, or the preservers or whatever, mm-hmm. and everybody has some common characteristics and yeah, communication is going to be pretty easy. These guys clearly not from this cut from the same cloth. So, right. Right. Exactly. I like this. It's good. Uh, we'll see how it goes. I'm looking forward to it. Yep. Well, listeners and viewers, I hope you enjoyed this episode of beyond Trek podcast. Stay tuned. We're going to be doing more episode reviews and Hey, you know, that's about it. So live long and prosper. Hey everybody. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our Patreon and anchor supporters. Big thanks to Stephanie Baker, S Tam, Anne Marie, Jim Cook, and Nora Hickson. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for being a part of beyond Trek podcast. We are Beyond Trek Podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious Trek content to your day. Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile.